Welcome to the Portrait Detective podcast, where we dive into the collections of the State Library of New South Wales to discover iconic images from Sydney's past. Hi everyone, I'm Cassie Gilmartin, editor of portraitdetective.com.au. I'm here with Margot Riley, curator at the State Library of New South Wales, co-founder of Portrait Detective and an expert in fashion, history and photography. Hi everyone, it's great to be here and I'm just really grateful to the State Library of New South Wales who've given me the afternoon off so I can come and (laughs) chat to Cassie and also to Create New South Wales for their continued support of our series. We are indebted to them very much. Um, Margot, we've been covering quite a few iconic images from Sydney's history in this podcast based on the website resource called Portrait Detective and based on your fantastic research. Today we're travelling back in time to 1857 and we're talking about James Johnson, a man who became an unwitting celebrity in the colony and was even chased down the street by kids fascinated by his story. And for everyone listening, you can see the image we're discussing by tapping the link on your phone at the bottom of the podcast homepage or visiting portraitdetective.com.au forward slash podcast. So, Margot, who was James Johnson? Well, he was a young um, Irish seaman. He was only 20 years old, and he was the sole survivor of the wreck of the Dunbar, one of Australia's worst 19th century maritime disasters. He was rescued from the cliff face two days after the ship was wrecked, and as you say, he became an instant celebrity. And the Dunbar, um, for those who don't know the story, it it had sailed all the way from England and attempted to enter Sydney Harbour the night of a terrible storm. And everyone on board, 121 people, perished except except for James. And um, we've got an account uh, of the report into the shipwreck and it says... The wreck of the Dunbar at Sydney's South Head on the evening of 20 August 1857 was a disaster that mesmerised the colony of New South Wales. The ship was almost at the end of an 81-day voyage from Plymouth, carrying immigrants and well-to-do colonists returning to Sydney when it missed the entrance to Port Jackson and crashed into the sheer sandstone cliffs just south of the heads at the Gap. The heavy seas quickly pounded the ship to pieces and all but one of the 122 people on board perished. The sole survivor was 20-year-old crewman from Ireland, James Johnson. It must have been an incredible event. Well, I think... um Again, it was it happened at night, late at night, midnight. So you can imagine the terror of mm. of the people on board. The, the The story was covered very, very extensively in the newspaper, uh, newspapers of the day, and of course through the inquest of the events. And it's from the testimony that um, Johnson gives uh, that that a lot of the information that we know about uh, about the wreck is is taken for for history. And he t- tells the story that he himself was thrown from the deck of the Dunbar. Um, what had happened was that the, um, as you say, the captain had misjudged the entry into the into the, the harbour and he'd actually swung the ship early 
which is how it crashed into into the cliffs at uh, Watson's Bay, the gap at Watson's Bay. So in that process, um, James and three other crewmen were thrown into the water. They managed to hang on to, uh, you know, a piece of timber. Um, around them there were people, you know, screaming, you know, people just being tossed from left to right. Um, and the other three sailors didn't survive. Um, James managed to, to, to get washed onto the rocks and, scra- and scramble up out of the swell of the ocean and he endured 38 hours of exposure waiting and hoping to be rescued and his big fear was that he would not be found Um, because I suppose in having never been to Australia he didn't really know how close the settlement was uh, and he feared that he would starve to death on this is as as he uh, told the testimony fortunately the wreck had been seen by a steamer that was passing so they were able to report to uh, on a uh, steaming into Sydney that that morning that there'd been this terrible wreck and as you say there were a lot of people returning to Sydney who were you know colonists so many members of family and friends lost mm. people uh, on on from the from the Dunbar so it was an absolute tragedy uh, but like as human nature is there were also people who were fascinated to come and see the the wreck. Uh, so it was a young jeweller from Iceland. I know it oh. sounds unbelievable. Like we had a jeweller from Iceland, but yes. It's an Antonio even journey to Australia. <laughs> Antonio Waller, who had come out, as I say, and was m- among many sort of hundreds of people gathered at the top of the cliff of the cliffs. He climbed down Jacob's ladder, which is still out there. It's a, a, a you know a, an iron ladder that comes off the side of the cliff to sort of have a better look. And it was mm. that was how he was in a position to actually see James Johnson waving oh, a kerchief um, and, and attracting attention to himself. Um, this enabled the, the people up the top to raise Johnson to the top, get him to the top of the cliffs. Um, and one of the accounts that I read said that one of the um, people who'd gathered gave Johnson a, a, a sovereign to sort of say, oh, thank God, you know, you're, you're alive. And because he had his clothes were all sort of tattered and ripped to pieces, he didn't have a pocket. So he put the sovereign in his mouth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he was taken to the Maritime Hotel in Watson's Bay for a hot bath, and that was where he was pronounced fit and well. But as we say, of the 122, um, there were no other survivors, and there were really... Um, awful descriptions of because the bodies were all you know beaten against the rocks and um yes descriptions of you know sharks and gosh it was it was an absolutely um terrifying and horrific um, moment in maritime history but it did have a good outcome because uh the the hornby light was installed uh at the cliffs there uh, to prevent future disasters Mm. As you say, a harrowing experience. Indeed, the the portrait that we're looking at of James Johnson, I think, shows quite a wild, almost distraught look in his eyes. Um, Or perhaps that is the result of Sydney siders chasing him down the street. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, James was obviously a working class man, as we've we've said before. What are the visual clues that distinguish him as that? Well, I think... 
you know, the main thing in this instance is obviously he's survived a shipwreck. So his face is really windblown and mm. ravaged. You can actually see mm. how, um, you know, the, the ocean, and, and which, which again gives authenticity to mm. it. I think if, if you didn't have that kind of um, look on his face, uh, you probably would think, oh, gosh, is that him? But the other thing is he even, you know, he's a good-looking, strong, sort of virile-looking Irishman, but his, his hair is not as groomed as a, um, a a gentleman's would be. Uh, he it's longer, you know. He, he just is. He just has a less groomed appearance, and his 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 um, beard again is just one a fringed beard. And with his clothing, that so of course he he lost his clothing um, through the shipwreck. Um, and he's obviously been reclothed from um, the supplies, ready to wear clothing supplies in Sydney, but. Suitable clothing has been chosen. He hasn't been dressed up as a gentleman. He has he is wearing um, clothes that would be appropriate to his class, and that's mainly indicated by the fact that it's a soft collared shirt. It doesn't have a high starched collar, and he's wearing a neckcloth. Again, what he waved around to attract attention to himself on the rocks. It's just a very softly tied kerchief, which would have served two purposes. If you were sweaty, you could take it off and you know wipe your face. So, you know, and as a, a seaman, you would want to wash, wipe spray off your face. or So I think a, a really nice uh, to see that. And his coat, he's wearing a, an all-weather coat, which has a caped collar. So, again, very, um, very useful for um, him because he would be working outside and walking the streets of Sydney. Um, so he, he's well protected with his coat. So I just think it's one of the most extraordinary images. And I think... That in itself is a really interesting point. Due to that portrait that was taken of James, it allowed the breaking down of those personal barriers. People all of a sudden knew who someone on the street was for the first time. And we're talking about a time uh, in the late 1850s when mass circulation of photography was just beginning. And today, you know, we were talking um, the other day, Instagram has given us the feeling that we know celebrities, that they're part of our lives now because of social media. But the portrait of James Johnson that we're discussing is really the beginning of this, James being recognised in the street due mm. to his portrait. Yeah. And I think for, you know, some, it's, it's like someone who has fame thrust upon them. Mm. They're not prepared. You know, it's different if you're an actor or, or, you know, somebody you expect a certain level of scrutiny. But for someone, you know, quite a humble um, working class man. And, 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 you know, I think you can see, you know, he was away from family and friends. He was totally on his own. He didn't have any workmates with him. You know, even the fact that, you know, when he, he applied to get his salary, he was told that he wouldn't be paid for the voyage. For So he had no means oh, of, of even keeping himself alive. Mm. So he does have that hunted kind of and haunted mm. look about him. And um, and he does say, he um, the newspaper reports are, are fabulous for this, um, this era because there is so much interest and documentation. Um, so one of somebody encounters him and he tells this person who then writes a letter to the newspaper that whilst everybody else is cashing in 
on his celebrity. You know, the photographers are taking photographs. They're selling these portraits so that people can have their brush with fame. Mm. Um, But Johnson himself didn't get any any money. He, he wasn't paid for this, according to him. So they did raise a public subscription which to, to compensate him for the lack of his salary. And it was actually whilst he was out uh, trying to... Um, working with one of the people who was organising for the subscription, that this incident uh, was uh, reported in the paper that he'd actually shaved off his beard. So if you go and look at the image on the portrait detective, you see he has quite, um, uh, you know, a a substantial beard. Um, But because people were recognising him, especially the street boys who were chasing him and harassing him in the streets, he'd actually shaved the beard off. And that was, were they chasing him just out of curiosity? Oh, yes. It would have been, you know, oh, my God, you're it. You're this amazing man. And, you know, he... I suppose for kids who, you know, perhaps didn't have, you know, they're probably urchins, they probably didn't have families. Um, you know, he was just this larger-than-life figure that everyone was talking about. So, uh, and, and as I've said to you before, you know, in this sort of early period of photography, the majority of people, unless they had a mirror, they really didn't know what they looked like. Mm. And it seems quite odd to us it's because we can't concept, imagine that you wouldn't know. And, you know, with a photograph, you can actually look at yourself. You can study yourself and you begin to have a, a you know picture in your own mind of what you look like. But imagine not knowing uh, that you know what you look like. Yeah, what your features. Were. Um, and so yes, you would you would recognise friends and you would recognise family and your immediate circle. But unless you'd been introduced to somebody, um, you really would not have known um, who a famous person was. Mm. Um, mm. So this culture of print media that that really exploded in the nineteenth century mm. was really the first time that this. Um, uh, circulation, wide circulation of what people looked like um, sort of occurs. And, of course, it starts with um, the kings and the queens and, uh, you know, the ministers and, and actors and actresses. They're um, the main, uh, the first of these famous people. Uh, so for someone like, as I say, like J- James, it would have been an out-of-body, almost an out-of-body experience, yes, I think. Yes, to be so. recognised. And how would the image, the portrait of James have come about? He was a working-class man, clearly, you know, going through a, a trauma and left with nothing. Mm. How did this image get taken? Well, as I say, I think photographers were some of the most entrepreneurial people in the world at this particular time because it didn't take very much equipment. The equipment was pretty portable. And once you had the training, you could set up shop almost anywhere. Mm. And I think they very much, and we do know that, um, you know, photographers came to Australia and immediately, um, because it was a hunger, a hunger for people to have images of themselves uh, to share with uh, send back to family and friends in England or Europe or wherever they came from to document their own um, time, their growing families. So I think in this instance, definitely um, the celebrity factor was, um, you know, an opportunity for local photographers. And we know for a fact that at least three different photographers took um, portraits of um, of Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was made into um, uh, an engraving that appeared in the in the local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Just to satisfy curiosity, one of the newspaper reports I thought was fabulous was that um, even in Hobart, like within a month, I think it was maybe even two weeks, someone from Sydney had travelled down to Hobart with a copy of the photograph 
taken by Freeman Brothers in Sydney. And this was on display so that people could see because there was such an interest, um, you know, just on the eastern seaboard. Um, so and, this, and also you need, you know, images to accompany sensational reporting mm-hmm. of the inquest. And there were full little pamphlets that were produced um, that, you know, contained illustrations. And one thing which I thought was absolutely fabulous was the, um, the Bradshaw Railway Guide. Now, oh. for 1857, they hadn't had any railway disasters, right. so they thought, well, we'll just take the shipping disaster. <laughs> and they, print, they printed 10,000 copies of their railway guide. So beyond saying what the timetable was, right. uh, there was a series of, I think it was seven or eight images, um, engravings of the, the Dunbar, the disaster, um, oh. the boy, the, the Icelandic jeweller who had climbed down Jacob's Gosh. ladder, James, all of the characters were, you know, in this, in this uh, railway guide. 10,000 copies. Like Australia, the population would have been, you know. Uh, anyway, apparently <laughs> they thought they were going to sell out in a flash so oh it's entrepreneurial like the uh, photographers yeah and i think you know it's print culture you know um that was a this was really the time where you get the beginnings of magazines um, illustrated newspapers and people uh who may not be able to read can look at a picture yeah. So the the power of an image to carry a story was really really understood at this time. And so from photography you could have an engraving made quite quickly. So um yeah, it was a very um important uh, in communicating the news. Mm. And I guess um if we we liken this disaster to present day, it's almost like um the 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 rescue of the the boys in Thailand. Uh, it captured the world. We were mm-hmm. all on tenterhooks, mm. knowing, what, wanting to know if they would, mm. would be okay, mm. if they would get them out. Mm. And in a way, the Dunbar was that exactly big an event. And, and again, this sort of, uh, you know, the fear, the ghoulishness of people, you know, going and collecting souvenirs, you know, bits of this and that that got washed up on the beach. There was a uh, actually a museum down at the rocks, which was housed relics of the Dunbar. Mm. Um, and 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 it's interesting too that, you know, 160 years later, there's still. Um, this, it has real powerful resonance in Australian history. There is um, a memorial to the um, a mass grave at um, Camperdown, where the the um, the bodies of the um, that were rescued or found, sorry, uh, have were interred. And also um, in 2018, there was a reenactment of Johnson's rescue from the rocks at the Gap, and New South Wales Fire and Rescue actually. Enacted it, which I and one of um, Johnson's descendants was there. Oh, fantastic! And when I looked at the article in the newspaper, I thought, "Oh my gosh, he looks like James Johnson without a beard." Wow! Oh, how fantastic! <laughs> the power of genetics. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and there are other things we can learn that from this portrait as well. It, first of all, it's it's an ambrotype, which a lot of people have trouble distinguishing from a daguerreotype, an earlier form of photography. What are the the noticeable differences between Mm. the two? Well, both of them are what are known as cased images. So you usually see um, either a daguerreotype or an ambrotype in a small case with a cover. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
you can get large, larger images, um, larger daguerreotypes, and in this case, this is a large ambrotype. So the daguerreotype invented in the 1830s, but by the 1850s had been superseded by the next process to um, create um, stable, long-lasting photographs. Uh, the daguerreotype is made on a mirrored metal plate, a silver-coated plate, so it has a mirror-like surface, mm-hmm. whereas the ambrotype is a glass plate. It's actually a negative, a very thin glass negative, and it's known it, it's a collodiotype, and that just means that there was a, a viscous kind of a liquid that was put onto the glass plate, which was what was um, photosensitized, so that you could put okay. that into the camera, and that was the medium that captured the image. Right. Okay. Uh, and a collodiotype could actually make a, a negative so it could print from it, mm-hmm. or it could make what we call, it's like a false positive. And you create it because it's, it's an illusion. It's an optical illusion. So the negative, you put a piece of black paper or, or fabric behind or even a lacquer, and it actually creates the illusion of it being a positive. But right. the way to um, you see this is that if you have a p- photograph of a married woman, because it's a mirror, like it's actually a negative, her wedding ring will be on the right hand. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people are fooled by that. They go, hang on a minute, this is supposed to be a picture of, you know, my, you know, great, great granny and, you know, Mrs. Blah, blah. And she was married at this date. And yet she's got a ring on the right hand. Mm. Well, that's another sign that Mm. it it is definitely an amber type that you're looking at. So basically the differences are it's not doesn't have the mirror surface that you see in a in a daguerreotype. And it is a glass negative um, Mm. that, um, you know, but looks like a positive. Mm. Is that clear? Probably uh, not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, we could we could talk for a long time around. around but people can things. go to the portrait detective and they'll see the image of James, and you'll see it has the mo- they have the most beautiful quality to them mm. because there is there is no grain to it mm. uh, on collodion. It's actually really clear, mm. so it's it's the, the most beautiful quality image. And you could color them, and this uh, this has this is a coloured ambrotype as well. And, and such a story to it. And, and of course, the story doesn't stop there because James in later life, it, you know, the ocean played a huge part in his entire life, didn't it? Indeed. Um, well, as we say, he, he did eventually receive the monies that had been raised. It was about £50. Pounds, mm, from the colon, uh, from, from, from people. The, from the people uh, and there was a list of the subscribers in the mm. newspaper. So quite a lot of people came to the party eventually mm. <laughs> to, to, um, to sort of compensate him really for the loss of his salary Uh, and he got a job first of all um, with the Sydney portmaster but eventually he he took up the role of lighthouse keeper at Newcastle, Mm. Nobby's Head so he in turn uh, protected others sailing um, sailing away, sailing around and eventually did rescue was involved in a rescue uh, of another another wreck uh, at Nobby's Head. Um, Yeah so he lived out, he he actually um, Outlived the disaster by 58 years, um, lived up into his 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've certainly loved talking about James Johnson, uh, a man who didn't look for fame, but it certainly found him. And Margot, it's been terrific talking to you, as always, to understand more about the history and context of this iconic image. Yes, it's been great and, you know, really wonderful to to explore James Johnson. And I encourage everyone to, you know, delve into this story. There's quite a lot of information online, so please, um, you know, follow, follow the tale further. 
And please join us again when we talk another time about iconic images from the State Library. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today on the Portrait Detective podcast. Thank you.